Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Eureka Rebellion. This was a famous uprising in Australian history where gold miners in the 1850s uh, rebelled against the colonial Victorian government. Um, this rebellion was a result of the government imposing taxation without representation on the miners in the form of the much-hated miners' licence that they instituted. And uh, it became a famous part of Australian history, although there is still a lot of argument today, even today as to how important or influential it was on the development of, of Australia as a, you know, as, as a colony and later on as a nation. Um, <clears throat> so what happened was this. In protest of, of what they saw as governmental tyranny, gold miners in the Victorian town of Ballarat staged uh, what was essentially an armed uprising against the Victorian government, uh, which culminated in a bloody battle at the Eureka Stockade, as it was known, uh, in late 1854. Now, you know, obviously, while colonial settlers obviously perpetrated horrific crimes against Australia's Indigenous population over the years, Australia itself has actually never undergone a real sort of political revolution or an independence of civil war, nothing like that, really. Um, Australia was peacefully federated in 1901 and throughout the 20th century, slowly but surely has cut its ties with uh, the British and, and their empire, although it does still remain part of the Commonwealth and still has Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state. But since Australia was colonised, there, there hasn't really been you know, a large-scale political rebellion or, or revolution, unlike so many other nations that were founded via colonisation, such as you know the United States, obviously Brazil, Mexico, plenty of others as well. So <clears throat> the Eureka Rebellion is, is kind of one, you know, it's one of the closest things that Australia really has to it an armed revolution. Uh, and, and while you see it obviously scarcely stacks up against the prolonged and bloody independence wars fought in other European colonies, it was still, uh, look, I would argue, an important moment in Australian history, although certainly people don't agree with, many people don't agree with that, you know, um, it, it's debated to this very day. We'll talk about this later on the episode. Uh, but look, just as there are people who consider the Eureka Rebellion to be a very, you know, a seminal event in Australian history, there are also certainly those who think that the whole thing's just been blown out of proportion just because Australia doesn't have its own bloody tale of, uh, struggle and rebellion. It's almost like this one has been lifted up as a result because it's uh, it's kind of <laughs> kind of the best we've got in that regard. So, look, whatever your thoughts, it's fair to say that Eureka Rebellion is uh, certainly notable and quite a famous chapter in Australian history. Uh, and I, th I think it's a little disingenuous to say that it wasn't an influential one as well as, as we'll talk about. But uh, that's more up for debate. Anyway, I'm keen as much to get across some Australian history. I obviously love a bit of Australian history, warts and all. So let's get to it here and uh, and have a chat about the Eureka Rebellion, famous story from my home nation uh, and indeed my home state. Obviously, the greatest state uh, and the greatest nation on earth, Victoria and Australia. Get it up, get it up, you mate. Greatest place on earth, don't even worry about it. Anyway, <clears throat> we're going all the way back. Going all the way back here, all the way back to 1851. And in 1850, 1851, a, a very important uh, discovery was made public uh, to the world, not just to uh, you know the, these nascent colonies in Australia, but uh, indeed to the entire world. And it was the discovery of commercially viable gold fields in Australia. So let's talk about the Victorian gold rush here, which obviously began, as I say, in, in, in the 1850s, 1851. 
Gold had been found in Australia in smaller quantities as early as, as 1823, but it actually never been investigated or mined properly. The colonial governments actually sought to keep the, the, many of the findings of gold secret, right, so as not to trigger the utter chaos that came with the gold rush. Because at this stage, if, you, if you're not aware, Australia is not even a country. Australia is not an independent nation. It is a series of colonies. Uh, there, there's New South Wales, which uh, slowly but surely gets broken off at other pieces. You know, there's Victoria, Queensland, what's that, what have you, Southern Australia, West Australia. Um, but uh, at this point, it is not a sovereign nation. It is part of the British Empire. And uh, it's very it's very sparsely inhabited at this point. You know, today there's, you know, tens of millions of people living in Australia. Back then there were maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, uh, including, obviously, of course, you know, plenty of white settlers, European colonists that were coming over from uh, from from Europe, principally uh, the British Isles, whether it's England, Scotland, Wales, or, or Ireland. Lots of lots of Irish immigrants, um, and of course the indigenous population, which is on the receiving end of a brutal campaign of persecution and and slaughter, essentially, which is you know of course one of the grand traditions of of European uh, colonial practices throughout history. So, you know, certainly. Not really shifting from the uh, the the status quo. Not really shifting from the modus operandi there when it came to colonising Australia. Unfortunately for uh, for the Aboriginals that uh, that live there. Anyway, in 1851, um, after these these more isolated instances of gold being discovered throughout the you know 1820s, 30s, 40s, whatever else that had been kept under wraps, in 1851 there is a series of discoveries of alluvial gold that that get out essentially the public is made aware of these the the information uh, the information is not kept under wraps and all of a sudden news of the discovery of gold travels not just around uh, australia and when i say australia i mean the colonies that 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 uh, that made it up at this point but around the entire world right the brand new colony of victoria is where uh, the gold is discovered south of the murray river this colony is not even it's a few months old at this point under a year old right it's only just separated from new south wales officially and almost overnight victoria is thrust into the international spotlight as the center point as the as the focus point for a gold rush as the news spread, people flocked in their thousands to the Victorian gold fields. In 1850, give you some sort of context here, in 1850, before the gold rush, under 30,000 people lived in the Victorian capital of Melbourne, right? Very small city, 30,000 people. Within 10 years, half a million people lived there. So uh, just an enormous boom of, of, of people and wealth and money. Of course, it, was all, it, all, it, it all traced its origins back to the, the, the discovery of, of gold here. Colonists abandoned their jobs as farmers and traders and bankers and lawyers. Entire ships' crews would abandon their vessels in port and countless thousands of people poured into Victoria from all around the world, all of them seeking to make their fortunes on the goldfields. And just as it had done three years previously in California in 1848, the discovery of gold caused mass immigration to Victoria, enormous economic growth, and saw cities balloon in size overnight, as we've already said. Settlements like not just Melbourne, Bendigo, Beechworth, Castlemaine, and most importantly for our story, Ballarat. These were the cities that were centred on the goldfields, and they saw fortune seekers flood in and set up shop as miners, hoping to strike it rich and secure a fortune for themselves. Now, initially, as I say, uh, it was surface alluvial gold that was the focus of the gold rush. Some goldfields were honest. This is not a joke. Some goldfields were so rich that you could just pick up nuggets of gold off the ground. They were just lying on the ground. You could pick them up. Didn't have to do anything, panning, mining, nothing, right? But the alluvial gold was soon exhausted, and so mines began to be dug deeper and deeper as time went on, so, so as to find you know, the rich veins of gold that were underground. Now, all in all, throughout the entire period of the gold rush, right, it was, it, it's estimated 
that just under 2 million kilograms of gold were extracted from the Victorian gold fields in the, in the back half, across the back half of the 19th century in the wake of the gold rush here. 2 million kilograms, much of which was exported back to Britain, where it was used to pay British debts and, of course, fueled the expansion and the economic dominance of the British Empire. So the wealth really was pouring in from, from, uh, from the, the, well, I was going to say the colonies, but one colony in, specific, one colony in particular, Victoria here. But closer to home on a more domestic level here, Melbourne, the capital of Victoria, became one of the biggest and one of the richest cities in the entire world in the wake of the gold rush, which is quite an achievement considering that Melbourne was established in 1837, right? So it's only a couple of decades old, and it is already one of the biggest and one of the wealthiest cities in the entire world. So the gold rush really, from you know, from a from an economic perspective, from a societal, from a political perspective, it was enormous and it completely changed. You know, even if we're not going to talk about the Eureka Rebellion changing Australian history, certainly the Victorian gold rush did. Anyway, it was against the backdrop of this gold rush that the Eureka Rebellion took place. It was actually a direct response to the way in which the Victorian government oversaw and managed the rush itself. In August 1851, as news of the discovery of gold in Victoria began to spread, the Victorian colonial government, which is this stage, don't, don't forget, it's not even two months old officially, the Victorian government claimed crown rights for all of the proceeds of the gold mines everywhere within the colony. The Victorian Lieutenant Governor, a bloke whose name was Charles Latrobe, he announced that a miner's licence would cost 30 shillings, quite a sum of money in those days, and would be mandatory for anyone who was seeking their fortune on the gold fields. The announcement as you might imagine, of this expensive miners' license for the thousands of people who had poured in into the colony to seek their fortunes. This announcement it went over like a fart in an elevator, and within weeks, small groups of miners they're getting to, they're getting together and they're protesting the license and its fees. But this did nothing to prevent the colonial government from continuing to tax just I mean tax the pants off the miners here. In January 1852, the miners' license was increased to three pounds a month. That is. £340 in today's money. And, and, and remember, that's every month. So thousands of pounds a year. It was an exorbitant amount of money, even when you consider how quickly miners could, you know, get rich on the gold fields, but they're still paying £3 a month for the privilege of this. And the raise in the price led to much larger protests across Victoria very quickly indeed. And these protests, they, th- they, they threatened to become something much larger too, as many miners... Uh, were reported to be stockpiling weapons as they continued to protest against what they saw as this draconian taxation here. And as a result of the growing uh, the growing sort of uh, unrest amongst the miners here, the government actually backed down and uh, they kept the miners' licences instead at one pound a month. But in all honesty, that still didn't really solve the underlying problem, still quite a large amount of money. But the, the real issue here is that the miners were paying a tax, right? That's what the miners' license was. It was a tax. They were being taxed quite harshly, and they weren't being offered any representation in the Victorian Parliament. Now, this obviously doesn't sound great. No taxation without representation. Obviously, you know, something that historically is, uh, has been a very persuasive argument uh, for, for political reform. But... I want to remind you of something before we get, I, you know, I, I said I'd tell this story warts and all, so I want to get across one thing before we get too deep on this bit, right? Remember that most of these miners are immigrants. They're newly arrived in Australia. And even today, it's, you know, very uncommon for new immigrants anywhere to immediately enjoy the benefits of suffrage. So these are blokes who have got off a ship a couple of weeks ago, are being asked to pay a tax in order to exploit the natural wealth of the colony they've just landed in, and are refusing to do so because they don't have a voice in Parliament. 
and because the taxation is also, you know, very harsh indeed. But there, there, there's a little more back and forth than you, you might. It's not as black and white as you, as you would think, right? But uh, the other thing to consider here is that, uh, you know, these, uh, even the people who had been in Australia for a longer, you know, even the people who didn't move to Australia for, for, for the gold, not a lot of them had been born in Australia. I mean, Australia didn't even exist, right? It was just the colonies, right? When I, when I talk about Australia in this instance, I'm talking about the continent here because the, the, the nation doesn't exist yet in 1850-whatever. So it's important to note here that the overwhelming majority of the people who were protesting against, you know, taxation without representation weren't Australian in the strictest sense. They weren't born in Australia. They weren't Australian citizens because that didn't really exist but you you understand that this what I'm, the only thing i'm attempting to say here really is that there is a, it's a little less black and white than than the story is sometimes made uh, made to look and there are certainly there are people who have said that a lot of these miners weren't so interested in you know the, their political rights or democratic rights whatever else they just didn't want to pay tax to you know dig gold out of the ground and certainly there's some weight to that argument anyway we'll talk about that t- towards the end of the episode anyway the long and the short of it is Immigrants newly arrived in Australia, they're being asked to pay the tax just as longer residents and even the odd Australian-born colonist, as rare as they they might have been in this situation here, they're all being told they need to pay this tax and they're not being offered anything in the way of political representation um, in exchange. They're all being excluded from it. So it is very difficult to to claim that it was an equitable position, particularly when the miners' license was so expensive. Um, but I, again, I just want the point to stand that there is a, a little more of a grey area than I think that often this is, this is often you know portrayed as a very black and white, cut and dried issue that you know the the government was bad, the miners were good. But there there is a little bit um, you know there, there's a little bit more to it than that. And there's actually a fair bit more to it that we'll, we'll get to in a second. Anyway, the other problem with the miners' license, not just the fact that it was very expensive, quite a harsh license. Also, it was enforced in a way that was, I mean, to put it diplomatically, most unfortunate, really. The way the rules surrounding the miners' license were um, enforced, though, it really wasn't great. A bloke named Robert Reed, uh, he was the commissioner of Ballarat, he was put in charge of enforcing these license laws. And uh, he didn't do this in a very sympathetic way at all. Now, obviously, you know, it's a tough job. Uh, people hated the license. They felt it was a harsh and unjust tax. But Reed, he did not do a good job. Well, he did, a, he did arguably too good a job of enforcing it because he enforced it with without much in the way of, of, of restraint or responsibility. He told individual law enforcement personnel, so, you know, cops basically, the Victorian police, to use their discretion when it came to license hunts. And uh, I'll tell you this, this didn't exactly lead to very harmonious interaction between miners and police. The uh, The police were said to extort extra money from the miners or take bribes or even just lock them up, lock up these miners without due process. And as you might expect, it only got worse from there. The government continued to take a very, very hard line against miners with these license requirements. They were enforced with uh, with regular inspections, these license hunts, hefty penalties from a, from an unsympathetic and unpopular uh, unpopular police force. And these inspections, these hunts, they became even harsher in 1853 when the Victorian government legislated that they could take place at any time and at any location. Uh, so these license shakedowns, they, they were characterised as essentially an instrument of tyranny by a lot of these sort of uh, political activist miners who were, were, were seeking change and reform. On top of all this as well, there was another rather unfortunate factor that was contributing to the tension between the miners and the government. And this one actually 
it doesn't reflect all that well on the mine. Well, most of the miners, uh, not not quite all the miners, as, as we'll discover. There was actually something going on here that, uh, again, comes back to the conversation we we're having about it not being quite as cut and dried, not being quite as black and white as as the issue is often portrayed. Because uh, these miners that are agitating against the government, actually, there was a, a, another section, uh, a subsection of miners that. Uh, the rebellion, the rebellious miners really didn't like and blamed the government for their continued presence. Because in 1854, there was a sizable increase in the number of Chinese and other Asian immigrants. And the government was further blamed for this by the miners, who were already very unhappy with the, with the tax, with the license, with the way it was being enforced. And now they're seeing the government, they're seeing that it's the government's fault that now, you know, there, there's uh, this increase in, uh, in Chinese immigration that's going unchecked by the colonial government. So broadly speaking, the miners had legitimate grievances here with most of what they were saying about, uh, about you know, tyranny, oppression, uh, harsh taxation, whatever else, right? They were, they were being oppressed. They were being exploited by a heavy-handed government. They were banding together to fight for their rights as workers, which I think is something that, you know, certainly we can support. But it is most unfortunate, right, that these legitimate grievances that they had were undercut. Their movement became mired with this racist sentiment as they opposed continued immigration from Asia. Don't forget as well, right, these miners who are, you know, having a great big carry of the government complaining about Chinese Asian migration, talking about all these immigrants coming into the gold fields, you know, complaining about it. They're all immigrants as well. Like, few enough of them were actually born in Australia. So this idea that the miners had, uh, these rebellious miners, that this idea that they had that they had a greater right to the gold fields than other immigrants from a different part of the world, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't hold a lot of water. But nonetheless, there was this, this you know, small but important racist undertone to the rebellious miners and, and their issues with the government. And, and, and it's important to note that, again, because I'm trying to paint a balanced picture of the situation and, and again, you know, represent the fact that it is not as cut and dried as you'd uh, as you might think it was from first glance. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. All of these issues, uh, all of these issues that the, the, the disgruntled miners had here, they culminated in a political powder keg with both sides of the conflict, the, the miners and the government. They were stretched to breaking point by this brewing tension. Now, I mentioned the miners had been gathering weapons, and as we head into 1854, there are sizable contingents of well-armed miners that are essentially on the brink of revolt against the government. And in the later months of 1854, this tension, it all finally came to a head. And there was one specific issue that catalyzed the conflict enormously. It was the death of a young man named James Scobie. Now, Scobie, <clears throat> he was a young Scottish fellow, he was 27 years of age. He had moved to Australia, of, co- of course, as you know, thousands of others uh, had done uh, to seek his fortune on the Victorian goldfields. Now, on the 7th of October in 1854, Young Scobie, he headed off to Bentley's Hotel, which is a pub in Ballarat, uh, and he went there with his mate Peter Martin. They're going to have a drink together. Anyway, they arrive at the hotel, and they find that it's shut. Now, Scobie, he went up to a window to have a peek in and see what the situation was, why it was all closed. And what happens next, uh, it seems to be a little uncertain. There are a couple of different stories here. But... uh, Regardless of how it happened, what did happen was that when Scobie was up near the window, the window was broken. 
Scobie's mate Martin said by said, said that it was someone inside the pub, while another bystander said it was Scobie who broke the window. And whatever the case, right, there was someone who was inside attempting to basically grab or, or hit or injure or hurt Scobie from the inside of this broken window, right? Now, Scobie's mate Martin, he uh, he comes along, he, he grabs Scobie by the collar, drags him away from the broken window, and the angry people are inside who are trying to belt him through the window. And he began to get Scobie back towards his tent, try to push him down the road, basically to try to get him back to go, to, you know, to go back home. However, Martin and Scobie were followed down the road by some men, and according to Martin, one of these men knocked him down and then hit Scobie with what looked like a battle axe. Scobie was killed, more or less on the spot, and uh, investigations into the killing took place immediately. The, the, the very same day, people tried to figure out what had happened. And here's where the issue really started to uh, ignite, because James Bentley, who was the owner of the hotel, Bentley's Hotel, he was accused of playing a part in the killing, right? He was accused of actually either having, either he or, or one of his staff had actually followed uh, Scobie down the road and killed him in this way. And there was a reasonable case to be made against the publican. Uh, there were eye, you know, there were eyewitnesses giving, giving testimony saying that they'd seen exactly this take place. But the magistrate who was put in charge of this inquest, he decided there wasn't enough evidence for prosecution and he dismissed the case altogether. But this magistrate didn't have a very good reputation. He was said to be corrupt and people strongly suspected that he was on the take from Bentley. So Bentley was essentially paying him off in order to drop this quietly so he wouldn't go away for murder. Whatever the case... The magistrate dropped the charges against Bentley, whether he was corrupt or not, you know, who can say? But the, the, the charges against Bentley were dropped. It was never investigated properly. And let me tell you this, people were not bloody happy. On the 17th of October, just a couple of days later, a huge number of the miners in Ballarat, they assembled at a meeting to protest this perceived miscarriage of justice because, again, it looked like a, you know, a wealthy publican was was enjoying extra protection uh, from uh, from legal consequences because of uh, you know because of corrupt government officials, and this protest, of course, it's happening against the backdrop of enormous an enormous amount of underlying tension between the miners and the government. So this protest quickly blew up. It quickly grew out of control and became essentially a full scale riot. These miners they descended on Bentley's hotel, and by way of retribution for Scobie's killing and the miscarriage of justice there. They burnt the whole thing to the ground while Bentley fled Ballarat, right? They burnt the hotel to, to ashes. Now, the government's response was punitive. They increased the frequency and the intensity of license hunts against the miners to teach them a lesson, and they ramped up arrests as well. On the 23rd of October, a couple of miners were arrested in connection with burning Bentley's hotel down, and this prompted another gathering of miners. 4,000 of them, in fact, this time. And these meetings continued. These meetings, these uh, gatherings, they grew in size and in frequency. On the 1st of November, a gathering of 10,000 miners uh, assembled to hear speeches from various high-profile miners, some of the leaders of, uh, of, of these, uh, you know, these, these very, very unhappy, discontent miners here. The license crackdowns, the arrests continued, but the meetings did as well. On the 11th of November, another 10,000 strong crowd of miners assembled, this time outside the government buildings in Ballarat itself. So a very pointed message there to the government forces. And at this meeting, 
an organization that called itself the Ballarat Reform League was established. Now, the Ballarat Reform League, it followed the ideology of the Chartists back in Britain. I don't know how, how much you know about Chartism, but it was a political movement from Britain that, uh, that advocated political reform. Uh, for the working classes, seeking things like expanded voting rights, the removal of property qualifications for a political office, regular elections, secret ballots, all sorts of stuff like that. And for the most part, the Ballarat Reform League, it largely followed in the footsteps of British Chartism. Not exactly, not word for word, but heavily influenced by uh, Chartism in Britain. In fact, some of the people there in Ballarat at these meetings had actually been Chartists back in Britain that had moved to the Australian colonies. And, and so the Ballarat Reform League had very similar objectives, even if they weren't exactly identical. They were seeking for, you know, basically further enfranchisement of, enfranchisement of, uh, of the working classes, political rights and, and, and what have you. And the first meeting of the Ballarat Reform League with the 10,000 people stood around there listening to, uh, to the speeches, what have you, uh, it passed two resolutions. The first one, that it is the inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws that he is called on to obey that taxation without representation is tyranny. That was, rep that was resolution number one. And resolution number two was to secede if things didn't get better. So you can tell that they really meant business from the outset. The Ballarat Reform League attempted initially, at least, to make progress peacefully. They wanted to uh, come to terms with the government, to negotiate uh, with the colonial government rather than, you know, through this armed protest, through riots and what have you. But unfortunately, the Ballarat Reform League did not make much progress when it came to negotiating with the government. The governor of Victoria, a bloke whose name was Sir Charles Hotham, he uh, initially did begin to take some action on the situation with the, uh, with the disgruntled miners. He established a royal, com a royal commission to investigate the situation with the miners, the licences and the tensions on the goldfield, which is a good move, you'd think, right? Yeah, okay, good start, Actually, you know, at least looking into it. Except that Hotham's efforts were severely undermined by Robert Reed, the bloke who had been enforcing miners' license laws for years. As the Ballarat Reform League attempted to make its grievances heard by the government, Reed, he refused to meet with the miners, he wouldn't listen to the grievances, and instead he cracked down on them yet again. This time he called up extra police from Melbourne to Ballarat. Now, this proved to be a bad move as the reinforcements were actually attacked en route to Ballarat by some of the miners, and the next day, uh, in response to, uh, to Reed, you know, calling up extra, extra cops and uh, an extra sort of law enforcement presence there, a uh, truly enormous gathering of miners took place, 12,000 of them. Right, got together on the 29th of November. They met and they were told by the Ballarat Reform League of the developments, the fact that Reid had rebuffed them, the fact that even though Hotham had put together this royal commission, it didn't seem like there was going to be any movement uh, politically when it came to, uh, you know, sort of the, the attempt, attempts at, at diplomacy that they were making, right, the, the, the failed negotiations with the government. And as a result, the miners decided that diplomacy was not the way and uh, that the, the, the brief time parlaying with the government was already over. So I suppose you could say that the negotiations were short. Instead, the miners decided upon open rebellion. And now symbolically at this meeting, they symbolically burnt their licenses as part of this new 
resolution for political action. They were not going to attempt to negotiate and were not, weren't going to attempt to talk to the government about it anymore. They were going to take direct action. And as I've talked about with, with weapons stockpiling, with uh, the fact that they were ready to, to, to escalate these protests into, into full-scale riots, you can tell there is a fair bit of momentum behind the miners who are looking for a bit of a scrap. And, uh, you know, those in the Ballarat Reform League who had advocated negotiation, diplomacy and compromise, they were outed and a new group of mining leaders took place, those who were in favour of open resistance and rebellion. And um, the most famous of these leaders was a bloke named Peter Laylor, who uh, in response to another government crackdown after the licence burning, he took charge of the thousands of rebellious miners and attempted to sort of whip them into shape a little bit here. On the 30th of November, more licence hunts were conducted by the government and uh, when they tried to make arrests, a mob began to form to try to prevent the, ar- the arrested miners from being taken away. And in the wake of this mob here, Layla attempted to institute a more organised approach to the rebellion and so what he did, he began to divide the miners into companies and then uh, appointed officers to be in charge of the various companies, almost bringing you know a, a near military level. Well, I say near military, a military style uh, level of organisation uh, to these miners. As you'll see, it it, it wasn't hugely effective, as as we'll get, we'll get to in just a second. The next day. On the 1st of December, the miners, they assembled on top of Bakery Hill, which uh, is just to the east of Ballarat. It's in an area known as Eureka. And there the miners gathered around a large flag post on top of which flew a flag that would go on to become very famous in Australia. It's now known as the Eureka flag, named after where it was first blown, Bakery Hill. Uh, it's a blue flag with a white Southern Cross on it. The stars are all joined together with thick white lines. You go online, have a, have a look at a picture of it. And uh, as I say, very famous in Australia. It's often used uh, by trade unions these days, but unfortunately it has also begun to be co-opted by far-right extremists as a, as a symbol of white supremacy in the 21st century, which is most unfortunate. In any case, these rebellious miners, they assembled on Bakery Hill, they surrounded this flag post and the flag that was flying from it, and they swore allegiance to the Eureka flag as a symbol of a new independent Australia. You'll remember, right, the Ballarat Reform League, when it, when it was instituted, it made that resolution, it made that threat to secede. And now, Layla and the miners, they were following through on that threat, taking the Eureka Oath to fight for their rights and their liberties against the colonial government. After this ceremony, the rebels, they began to, uh, they, they constructed a, a stockade, a big barrier made of overturned wagons, bits of wood and whatever else could be found. Now, this wasn't a particularly well-built structure. These men were miners. They weren't military engineers or builders. But nonetheless, the stockade enclosed their encampment on the top of Bakery Hill. I mean, Layla himself recognised that it wouldn't do much in the way of defence in combat, but it gave them a a centre, it gave them a bastion, right? It gave them a place to make their stand. On the 2nd of December, the rebellious miners, they trained in and around the stockade. They were certain of a coming fight with government troops, and with good reason. More, More reinforcements had been called in from Melbourne, this time trained professional soldiers. And there was no doubt by now in anyone's mind that it would in fact come to a clash of arms. But the 2nd of December was a Saturday, right? So after a day's training here, all the miners, they they got pissed. They had a good old party. They assumed that there wouldn't be an attack from the troops on a Sunday. Of course, you know, day arrest, mate. You don't attack on a Sunday. So they, they all got drunk as lords and had a great time, again, assuming that they were safe from any sort of attack the following day. And how wrong they were. Because Commissioner Reid, he had spies watching the stockade, and after seeing the absolute state of affairs on uh, on Bakery Hill on the on the evening of the Saturday, he decided 
on swift action. In the early hours of the morning of the 3rd of December, after many of the miners you know, staggered away from Bakery Hill to go back to their, their tents to sleep off the booze, Reed ordered an attack on the stockade. 276 troops had been assembled, both police and these career soldiers that I mentioned come up from Melbourne, and they were put under the command of Captain John W. Thomas. Thomas marched his troops up to the stockade at first light and began the assault at dawn. Now, before I tell you the story of the Battle of the Eureka Stockade, I do want to, I want to draw your attention once again. I want to remind you of something. This is the largest organised armed resistance against the government that Australian colonists had ever staged. And even today, without you know Australia ever having had a war of independence or a, or a revolutionary war, it remains the largest political rebellion in Australian history. And when push came to shove and the fighting began on the top of Bakery Hill at the stockade, this rebellion lasted about 10 minutes. The miners, many of whom were still half cut, of course, they were brutally and mercilessly put down by the trained soldiers who descended on the stockade. While some miners gave fight, they were hopelessly outmatched by the government forces and the battle was over in minutes. 14 miners died during the attack. Eight more died of their wounds sometime later. And it would have been many more. So brutal was the soldiers' attack. In fact, it was so bad that at one point, the second in command of the soldiers, a bloke whose name was Captain Charles Pasley, he had to threaten to shoot his own men who were in the midst of attempting to, you know, they were seeking to kill surrendering miners with their bayonets. Pasley had to step in and attempt to kill his own men in an effort to, to save the lives of the people that Pasley had been deployed to pacify. The soldiers chased down miners as they fled. They butchered many even after the fighting had stopped, leading to a senseless slaughter. And many of the wives of the miners threw themselves between the soldiers and the miners in an attempt to, uh, to, to, to save the, the, the lives of, of, of these miners who, whose rebellion, again, was, was as swift as it was bloody. Even Peter Laylor didn't escape unscathed. He was, he was shot in the arm during the fighting and he later lost his arm to amputation. And in the end, a total of 34 miners were injured, uh, of which 22 died of their, of their wounds, and 113 were taken prisoner. And it's actually likely that the death toll is even higher than 22 because a number of miners fled into the bush uh, away from the uh, away from the government forces and were never seen again. They may have died while in hiding, too scared to, you know, re-enter civilization lest they face punishment for being part of the, of this uh, this failed rebellion. I should mention too that uh, from amongst the troops, six soldiers and police lost their lives during the fighting at the stockade here, but those who survived were immediately called back into action by Commissioner Reed, who reasserted his authority over the mining camps with an iron fist and brooked. No resistance in the time immediately after the stockade. Martial law was imposed. A curfew was enforced. Uh, and a ban on lights being lit after dark was upheld by, uh, by the government there in Ballarat. And Reed was aided in, uh, in restoring order here by the further deployment of a thousand soldiers under the command of Major General Sir Robert Nicholl, which... You might think, after hearing that, would only make things worse for the miners here. Even an even you know an even greater government police military presence here was was bound to make tensions worse. But thankfully, it didn't. 
Nickel was said to have been a very friendly and understanding fellow who actually actively sought out the miners affected by the recent event, the recent events, and, and talked to them sympathetically, heard what they had to say, and so tensions slowly but surely began to cool between uh, between the government, uh, you know, and, and the forces that were there and and these aggrieved miners. In any case, you would think, right, uh, after having heard the story of the Eureka Rebellion here, you would think that the government operation was a total success. This armed insurrection had been put down decisively, quickly, efficiently, and the uprising on the Ballarat goldfields was now over. The, the, The uprising had been fully pacified here. However, rather than be a triumph for the Victorian government, as news of the fight at the stockade spread, the public were outraged. It was portrayed as a massacre, not a battle, and many were sympathetic with the plight of the miners in the first place. They saw the miners' license as a harsh and punitive tax and then went on to see this uprising as the re- result of legitimate grievances. So to hear that you know these miners had been cut down and, and butchered by these soldiers, it, it really, really didn't go over well with the, with the general public. And because of this, protests now began to spring up in Melbourne, a long way from the goldfields. And more people than ever voiced their support for the reforms that were put forward originally by the miners in the Ballarat Reform League. In fact, the miners had such strong public support after the, the, the Eureka stockade that by the time trials began to come around for those who were arrested, not a single miner was convicted. Of the 113 miners who had been taken prisoner at the stockade, only 13 of them actually eventually faced trial in Melbourne. And quite interestingly, it would have been more. It was originally going to, be, it was originally going to have been 15 But three of those 15 were American. They were U.S. citizens. And so the U.S. consul intervened on behalf of two of them, just two of the Americans, and secured their release. Now, you may wonder, why didn't the U.S. consul intervene on behalf of all three of these U.S. citizens? Well, the third American, a bloke whose name was John Joseph, just so happened to be black. So how about that? Didn't enjoy the full uh, consular protection offered to, uh, to his compatriots there. In any case, when the trials began in February 1855, not a single one of the 13 accused men were convicted. In fact, the only people to face criminal punishment as a result of these trials, none of the minors. Uh, instead, there were two blokes who were imprisoned for a week after loudly applauding when the not guilty verdicts were read out. They were held in contempt of court and they were sentenced to a week in prison each. Can't go bloody clapping in courtrooms there, fellas. So they they were the only ones who actually got punished. Anyway, happily for these rebellious miners, they weren't punished further than what happened at the stockade and all of them walked free. And as they exited the courtroom, many of them, including John Joseph, were hoisted onto the shoulders of the crowds, paraded through the streets and, and, and largely... Uh, celebrated by the adoring crowds that had, you know, packed the streets outside the courtrooms to be the first to hear the verdict of the court. So it went very well for the miners, but conversely, the government, the Victorian colonial government, it became more and more mired in disapproval, especially after the Royal Commission that Governor Hotham had called for came back with its results. Remember that Hotham, you know, he instituted this Royal Commission and in 1855, the commission handed down its findings And I will tell you this, right, they were not kind to the government. The commission had been ordered before the stockade, before the fighting, and came back after it with a scathing review of the Victorian colonial government. The commission 
criticised more or less every aspect of government behaviour in, in connection with this uh, this whole affair. The miners' licences, their enforcement, the heavy-handed policing, the lack of concern for the miners' welfare, their grievances for the government itself. It made a range of recommendations, most of which were instituted, um, but not all of them for the better, as you'll see. But let's get across the good news because there was plenty of it, firstly. Here we go. The miners' licence abolished. They were replaced instead with a yearly fee, which amounted to just one pound. So a one-twelfth one of what had been expected of the miners previous, uh, uh, previously. And on top of that, a small export fee on the gold that was then sold. The police presence on the goldfield was, uh, was slash cut enormously. Uh, and the corrupt gold commissioners were replaced. And similarly, Reed and many other people like him, Reed specifically was uh, quietly retrenched to rural Victoria after his horrendous mismanagement of the situation in, in Ballarat and largely fell off the face of history there. But most significantly, most significantly, this Royal Commission found, right, that there was a need for the political enfranchisement of workers such as these miners. And as a result, the Victorian Parliament was expanded to include representatives of the miners themselves, ending the no taxation without representation grievance. And in the 1855 elections, none other than Peter Laylor himself was elected as the representative for Ballarat unopposed. And he went on to have a very long career in politics uh, until illness forced him to retire in 1887, so 30 years after this uh, this whole affair came uh, came to a close. However, there was a darker side to the commission's findings. I'm sorry to say, I mentioned before how Chinese immigrants had led to uh, a good amount of discontent amongst the miners after the 1854 influx of Asian migration, and unfortunately, the commission recommended that Chinese immigration be heavily restricted by the government so as to reduce racial tensions on the goldfields. And this, I'm sorry to say, was a seminal part of the political momentum that would lead to the enforcement of the White Australia policy, which you can hear all about in episode 129. The commission took on the miners' grievances about the presence of Chinese immigrants on the goldfields as a legitimate grievance and recommended the government take steps to essentially, as I say, dial back, restrict uh, Asian migration into Australia, something that gave a very strong foundation for the racist white Australia policy in the, in the decades to come. Anyway, it is largely impossible to argue with the fact that the Eureka Rebellion is one of the most famous episodes in Australian colonial history. That much is indisputable. It is very famous. But what it is possible to argue about, however, and people still do to this very day, is how important it actually was. Some characterise the Eureka Rebellion as a fight against tyranny and oppression, a brave stand made by the politically disenfranchised workers against an unjust government. The Chartist movement in Britain and their political reform agenda heavily influenced the Ballarat Reform League and the politics of Australian colonies and the nation itself decades later. The Eureka Rebellion held the government to account when it came to taxation representation. It paved the way for male suffrage in 1857 and female suffrage in 1908. And in this light, the Eureka Rebellion was indeed a struggle against political oppression and a fight for democratic rights. But then others argue that the miners were only in it for their own self-interest. They cared less about liberty and political rights and democracy than they did just about 
not paying tax and getting rid of the mining licenses. And this point is highlighted by the fact that many of these miners, they were immigrants. They didn't intend to stick around after the gold rush. They were exploiting Australia's natural resources for their own gain, didn't want to have to pay their taxes in doing so, and had every plan of leaving with their wealth once they were finished. It's a very cynical way of looking at it and certainly doesn't justify the way in which the tax was enforced, but there's certainly some truth to it at least. But quite aside from these two opposing viewpoints here, it's also possible that the reason the Eureka Rebellion is so famous is because, as I mentioned before, Australian colonists never fought a war of independence. They never rose in open rebellion against their imperial overlords to the extent that other colonies did. Inspiring tales of heroic conflict against oppressive colonial governments are few and far between in Australian history, and so perhaps people have built the Eureka Rebellion into something it wasn't just to fill the void that is filled in so many other inspiring origin stories of, of former colonies. The Eureka Rebellion has a legacy that I would say is, is very difficult to unpick, therefore, uh, especially when you factor in the, the racist undertones that it also involved. And Today, the Eureka Rebellion is often used in Australian political circles to support various political agendas, many of them in direct opposition to each other, often with little reference to the actual historical struggle itself. As I mentioned, even the far right are attempting to co-opt the flag for their own purposes. And that's in spite of it having been a symbol of everything from those in favour of an Australian republic to trade unionists, even to Australian communists, who all of these organisations, all of these ideologies have attempted to use the Eureka flag for their own purposes here. So the Eureka Rebellion is undoubtedly an important part of Australian history, although debate will continue as to exactly how important and for what reasons it was important. A noble struggle against tyranny, a group of self-interested immigrants dodging their taxes, or was it perhaps something in between? The true nature of the rebellion isn't all that simple to categorise, but nonetheless, it remains a very famous chapter in the history of Australia. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Eureka Rebellion. Always great to get across a bit of Australian history, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. Going to close out the show with the normal, normal boring housekeeping stuff here. Halfhousehistory.net, still the website, although I will direct you now for the latest, uh, for the best place to pick up the the, uh, the, the feed for your ver- whichever podcasting app you choose to use is Anchor, anchor.fm slash history. So, I will continue to post episodes on the regular website, and it's there that you can find the uh, you can find links to uh, the Patreon, to um, uh, the contact form, all sorts of stuff there. But if you're looking for the feed to make sure you get the the episodes as they're as they're released on your on your your podcast app, I have moved the podcast over to Anchor, so Anchor.fm slash Half-assed History. Anyway, if you want to support the show on Patreon, certainly uh, you can do that. Uh, Patreon.com slash Half-assed History. I do appreciate all the people who are chucking me money every week. Um, and there is a very small, very limited amount of merch left over in uh, in the shop. Uh, if you uh, go to halfhousehistory.net, you can follow the link there. Uh, just a few t-shirts, few notebooks left. Not a whole lot of stuff uh, left. I am planning some more merch for later in the year. I'll keep you posted once uh, there are more developments there. But uh, for those of you who are looking for some more half history swag, I'm pulling some stuff together, and we should have new merch, hopefully, by the end of the year. I know that's a, a bit of an extended timeline there, but uh, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that uh, I, I want to make sure that the, this next round of merch has uh, got a couple of you know special, uh, special bits and pieces involved with it, so I, I want to take the time to get it right. Anyway. That is that for another episode. Thanks for tuning in. A special thank you to all the people supporting me on Patreon, as I said. 
Going to close out the show with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, this one comes to us from Redditor Flail Wielder, who has a question about the gold rush. Uh, they ask, during the gold rush, why weren't pub owners arrested for selling alcohol to minors? Oh.